This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On this episode, we will talk with David Catanese, senior politics writer at U.S. News and World Report, about the 2020 presidential election. Why is Pete Buttigieg doing so well? Is the Elizabeth Warren campaign going to thrive without major donor fundraising? And how vulnerable is the president going into 2020? I'll also talk about how your political persuasion shapes how you view the economy, even though it should be viewed in objective, nonpartisan terms. And now, the Nexus. How is the race for president going? Depends on which reality you are living in. Do you see the economy is roaring with a 50-year low 3.6% unemployment, 3.2% quarterly GDP growth, and no recession in sight? Or do you see it as Americans working two and three jobs just struggling to stay in place? Does your 401k look great from a record stock market? Or are you pinching pennies because of your high deductible health care plans? Or maybe you have no health care at all because it's simply too much to purchase on your own. As the presidential race is shaping up, it's interesting to see what candidates are focusing on and how they're communicating that. If you're President Donald Trump, you've shifted into keep America great. The doomsday scenario of the economy in 2016, sketched out in such a dystopian way back then, has somehow been solved in two short years, and we're cruising along on economic greatness now. The question is, will the people who voted for him, but haven't been helped by this economy at all, vote for him again? Will they look at their bank accounts in arrears and imagine money to be there that doesn't exist? Probably they will. It's the president, after all, and his base adores him. On the other hand, Bernie Sanders is still fire and brimstone Bernie from four years ago. Nothing has gotten better, and gloom and doom reigns. The economy is so bad in his eyes that we have to upend the entire system. The mega-rich must be taxed along with creating Medicare for all. Is he ignoring the rosy economic indicators or seeing something many aren't seeing? It depends on which lens you're looking through and which reality you live in. Elizabeth Warren is much of the same and even more emphatic. Like Trump in 2016, she believes the system is rotting and needs to be restructured in dramatic ways, including abolishing the electoral college. The ultra-rich have too much money and tax rates need to be increased for the upper crust. In Warren's world, good economic news doesn't really exist, except to those who are making runaway profits from you know, a booming economy. How you view the economy is going to be a big indicator in how you vote in 2020. Generally, when the economy is strong and an incumbent is up for re-election, that incumbent wins. In modern memory, this happened when Richard Nixon was re-elected in 1972, but did not happen when the economy was in sharp recession and inflation was out of control for Jimmy Carter in 1980. Reagan fortunately benefited from a broad-based recovery in 1984, as well as George W. Bush in 2004. One major exception was Bush's father in 1992. The economy then was growing by leaps and bounds leading up to Election Day, 
But Bill Clinton had painted such an effective picture of an economy that went back to the Dust Bowl days of the Great Depression that voters were convinced they were in dire straits. They really weren't, at least relatively. Will we ever agree that the economy is doing well again? We seemed to do that as a nation in the mid to late 1980s, and then again in the mid to late 90s, but since then, never again. Has the economy been good at all in the 21st century? As fierce partisanship has risen, so has the polarized look at what should be objective data. But that's not the case for the most part. Dems don't want to hear the economy is doing well under Trump, just like Republicans didn't want to hear that under Obama. When Obama was in office, Republicans trumpeted the so-called underemployment rate as evidence that the economy was actually lousy and deceptive. They would throw in their dubious labor participation rate to add to their alleged evidence. Nowadays, I don't know one conservative who cites those figures at all, but lots of Democrats I know look for as many holes as they can find in Trump's economy. Maybe we should get back to the way we used to be. When the economy was up, we celebrated it and tried to make it last longer. And when it was down, we collectively worked to try to fix it. I value those who look at things through a nonpartisan lens when it comes to the American economy. David Catanese is the senior politics writer at U.S. News and World Report. He has been covering all aspects of U.S. politics for several years, with a particular emphasis on elections, and as the founder of The Run Blog. As the 2020 presidential race truly gets going, it's good to hear his expert perspective on how the candidates are doing and what stories may be under the radar at the moment. David Catanese, welcome to The Nexus. Thanks for having me. So who would you say is the candidate who has been the most surprising so far? I think you'd have to say that's Pete Buttigieg, uh, the South Bend, Indiana mayor who was, you know, kind of came out of obscurity. He was um, a a candidate for DNC chairman, um, an unsuccessful candidate that had to drop out, didn't even make it to the last vote, um, but was pretty much unknown other than to some party insiders. And, you know, he has now up on the rungs of in the second tier of candidates, along with much bigger names like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke. So he's certainly been the surprise uh, just regarding fundraising, the amount of money he was able to raise during the first quarter uh, and media buzz and attention and potential plausibility as the Democratic nominee. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we've been hearing so much about him in the last several months. Um, at this point, would you say, I mean, what would you say has been the best run campaign? Is it his or is it somebody else's? Oh, that's really hard. Um, that's a harder question because just because someone's at the top of polls doesn't mean the campaign's being well run just because we're in this, this such this early stage where it, it really is driven still by name ID and, and voters are still just getting tuned in. I have to remind myself of this just because I, you know, I've covered this day in and day out and obsess over every detail. Um, you know, most voters aren't like that. Um, 
But, you know, I think as far as organizationally, I've heard, I think Elizabeth Warren's campaign is very organized. I think she has a very cogent message. I think she knows exactly why she's running for president. Now, it hasn't translated her into a front runner yet, um, but her campaign is betting that over time, when, when voters do turn in, tune in, it will. Um, but I would put her high on the list of um, well-run campaigns. I think Kamala Harris's rollout uh, was very good. She had, a, she had a great rollout in January and uh, still has drawn the largest crowd to an, to an event of 20,000 in Oakland. Um, but January seems like such a long time ago now. Um, so these campaigns evolve and change and ebb and flow. Um, so, you know, organization wise, um, you know, you can't discount Bernie Sanders either just because of the amount of money he's able to raise and therefore the staff he's able to hire in these early primary states. So, um, I'm not really giving you an answer singular here on the best, uh, run campaign yet, because I, I think we don't know. I think to be fair, I think there are a bunch of campaigns that, that are doing good things, but sometimes well-run campaigns, the dividends aren't paid uh, until much later. Right. And on Bernie's note, I mean, is it truly a night and day difference from what it was four years ago? I mean, it's, it seemed like last time he got into the race so much at the last minute, it was very uh, tentative, obviously, seat of the pants. Um, has that completely changed, or is there still some elements of that this time around, too? So I, I'd split that into two parts. I think organizationally, it's very different um, because he comes in as, you know, as basically a front runner along with Joe Biden. Um, he, he comes off, you know, he comes in with a ton of money. He comes in with, you know, an organization largely that has been with him for, for years now, for three, four years now. Uh, so, yeah, he comes in as a, as a powerhouse at the beginning of this race. He was not that when he got in in 2015. He sort of, you know, he announced sort of haphazardly on the Senate lawn uh, and, you know, it was just everyone kind of shrugged and said, okay, this random old guy is running. Right. Um, but on on message, I think it is the same. I think it's day and day. I think it's, you know, Bernie Sanders 2.0 message-wise isn't very different than what we saw last time. It's just that his ideas have grown exponentially more popular over time. And that's the new element to his argument. It's, well, all the things I've been asking for for years are now popular. And just remember, you know, I was out first on this, whether it be Medicare for all or $15 minimum wage or free college tuition. Uh, the parties come to me now, but just remember I was I was that guy out there banging the drum on all these things way before it was popular. But I mean, Bernie's still Bernie. He's still doing rallies and he's still hammering the same message. If you go here and hear his stump speech, it's very, very close to what he did back in 2015. One difference on substance is he is talking a little bit more about uh, racial injustice, uh, a critique that I think hampered him in his 2016 run against Hillary Clinton, that he wasn't as sensitive to the plight of minorities, African-Americans in particular, um, and, and the racial uh, component of economic injustice and societal injustice. He's now trying to address that more and more, I think, to mixed reviews so far. Now, obviously, it's almost probably impossible 
to do the flip side of that. What's the worst run campaign? There's got to be a bunch of them vying for that. <laughs> but what, what are some of the ones that um, come to mind? And I would imagine that when I say worst run, almost like you're surprised at how bad they are kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, huh. I mean, worst run campaign. That is, that's really tough. Um, I mean, some of these campaigns are, you know, are such long shots that I, you know, I don't want to call them the worst, but it's kind of like how, you know, what's the rationale here? Do you have a clear, um, you know, a reason to run and a rationale? Um, You know, there's logistical issues you can talk about as far as who responds the best to press, which, you know, I deal with day to day. So I have personal biases about campaigns that, you know, get back to me quicker than others. Um, you know, for instance, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, um, she's an interesting profile to me as a, as a, as a candidate. And I have reached out to her campaign, uh, I mean, numerous times just to, you know, reach out to talk to the campaign manager or a spokesperson. And I never get any responses. Um, Mm -hmm. And here's a person, you know, polling at, you know, zero to 1%. To me, um, you, you want to be aggressive and you want to talk to everyone in the media. Any, any request you should try to fulfill or at least you respond to. So an indication of, you know, just not getting any response is, is odd. I mean, I can, I can email higher tiered campaigns, whether it be Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, and, and they'll, they'll get on the phone with me, you know, within a couple hours. Uh, but Tulsi Gabbard, you know campaign is too busy that's that's odd um you know julian castro is another one who i think you know he has an operation but are they the most responsive on on you know just sort of basic requests no um now all these campaigns have to pick and choose and i understand that you know they have limited amount of hours each day and i get that i mean we're all busy people and you know but I think, you know, an example of someone who's been really aggressive is Pete Buttigieg and his campaign. I mean, he was dealing, he was at that lower tier and he's been very aggressive and his campaign communications director has been very, you know, aggressive in outreach to reporters and wanting to get him in front of as many audiences as possible. And that's what you got to do at this point. I mean, these early innings is just about exposure. Get your candidate out there in front of the most diverse number of people and the largest amount of people as possible, especially if you're not a Joe Biden or a Bernie Sanders and nobody knows who the hell you are. (laughs) So, I mean, because later on, we're not going to, you know, the media is going to winnow this down and even the DNC will winnow it down and say, hey, you got to, you're not going to be able to get to the debate unless you're, you know, the standards are going to be tougher. So, you know, come late summer, early fall, the media's going to start to tune some of some of these people out. So now, now is the time where if you're a lower tier candidate, to me, you should be all hands on deck. You should be doing every media request you can. You should be working your tail off um, to set up, set yourself up for a breakout moment. And I don't understand why campaigns, some campaigns don't do that. I want to pick up on a point you just made, which is very interesting to me. And especially since you're a member of the media, you're, you have a part in this, I would imagine is you said that the media will start tuning campaigns out. What, what do you mean by that? Like they, they would just stop writing about, well, I just, well, I mean, look, we have so many different avenues of media now that there's too much content, right? There's too many opportunities, choices. There's podcasts, there's Twitter, there's YouTube, there's all the traditional 
you know, websites you can go to. Um, there's so much media, but what is going to happen is, you know, media begets media and media follows a storyline and we're not immune to what's on the Chirons on cable news sitting in us news and neither is the New York times and neither is the drudge report. And neither is, you know, pick whoever you go to. Um, it all follows in a circle. So you, you saw it with a Pete Buttigieg coverage. He started to get momentum in a poll multiple outlets started writing about the polls and then you had more outlets look at those polls and say, Oh, we need to do profiles on him. And a profile produced another profile. And suddenly he was in New York mag and vanity fair and Vogue and all these elite publications that two months ago would have never batted an eye. So what I'm saying is as this goes on, the media is going to make, you know, cuts and say, look, we've given these candidates a chance. If you're in the race for six months, and you're still pulling at 1% and you're not getting traction, you're probably not going to make it into a, into a story. Um, or you might not. I mean, maybe you will. Um, but with 20 candidates, I mean, I write these stories, you know, every week and it's, you know, you got to pick a focus. You're not going to, you're not going to include every, even all 20 candidates in a story right now. Um, if you're writing about healthcare or the economy, I mean, if somebody has something interesting to say, you're going to, but, you know, that's limited. You've got to make choices. And I think at the beginning, the media is open. We want to talk to everyone. This is the field. This is a wide open race. Let's, let's get as much coverage we can for all the candidates. But come August, if you haven't shown, you know, some movement, whether it be in polling or fundraising or just, you know, um, interest as far as your ideas, uh, you're probably going to get less coverage and then that produces less coverage. You know, that, that's, that's a multiplying effect as well. But I guess you'd call it a subtracting effect in that um, if nobody's writing about you, then you're not on TV, then you're not being talked about on Twitter and you're not being, you know, then your, your donors dry up and then you're out of the race. So um, there will be a winnowing effect. And I think it will start to happen. You'll have the first two debates in June and July. And then I think, by the end of the summer, you might have seen a candidate or two already drop out because they don't have the money and you'll start to see that winnowing effect occur. Uh, I would look to it in August and September. Interesting. Um, is this, I, mean, I guess I, I'm fascinated by a few things with the Biden campaign. It, it seems to me that he probably didn't miss anything by not getting in sooner. And it probably was very calculated to do this is my guess. And I mean, in general, is that true, you think? And how is the campaign for him looking at this point? So, you know, there, it's, it's funny, I was exploring this question today with some Democrats and operatives and campaigns. Um, everyone has a different theory of the case on this, right? I think you're right to say that, um, you know, Joe Biden didn't think he was going to lose anything. He looked at the field and as he, you know, he probably knew he was going to run last year, but the question was when to announce, when to actually declare yourself. But he looked at the field and said, Hey, no one's really running away with this. Bernie's got his people, but he's always going to have his 20, 25%, but no one else has taken off. And I've seen, and he's watched all of these announcements, Warren and Booker and Harris and Beto and, nobody, you know, everybody had maybe had a nice day or a good moment, but nobody took off and was running away with it. So if you're Joe Biden, you're, you've got universal name ID, you're sitting back and thinking, why take more arrows for three more months when I don't have to? Like, why 
you know, it's like running a marathon and like adding three more miles to it. Like if you can get in, get in a little later, you know, save your energy up. Um, because he is going to take arrows for his past record and not being progressive on a lot of the stuff and all the votes he took and all the policies. So yeah, um, he, you know, I don't think it costs him anything right now. He's ahead in the polls. He got a little boost this week we saw in the polls. Now there are others that say, look, we were able to organize in these early States. Um, in a way that Biden is now going to have to play a little bit of catch up. And I think in a state like Iowa, it may matter because they have such an arcane caucus process. Remember, you don't just go pull, you don't just go and vote on a piece of paper and, you know, put it in the machine in Iowa. It's a caucus. You got to, you're going into a room and you have preferences and you have to stand there for an hour and there, and there's this, you know, you, you, you put your top three preferences. So you try to win over people who may be um, your number two or have cast you as their number two choice. Um, And it's precinct by precinct. It's just, it's just an incredible amount of organizing. And I think there um, we saw in 2016, Ted Cruz was better organized than Donald Trump. That didn't make him the nominee, but it was good enough for him to win Iowa and kept him in the race as sort of the last alternative to Donald Trump. Now, momentum is still the biggest factor in politics. So you may be the best organized candidate, but if you come in with a huge amount of momentum, you're probably going to win if you're an Obama or a Trump-like figure that inspires your base. But in Iowa, I think that is different. And I have talked to some people who say, look, Biden's behind the eight ball here because we've had three months on him and we have 50 organizers. We've been talking to county chairs and precinct captains and getting volunteers and all those nuts and bolts, boring things that aren't paid attention to in the daily media, like yeah, Biden, that that's going to be a state where I think he's going to have to catch up. I think that's why, you know, he dove right in and is there this week. Is there any possibility shifting to the Republicans? Is there any possibility of a credible third party challenger to president Trump? You mean that challenge him within the Republican party? Yes. I don't think so. I think his numbers are very strong with the Republican Party. I mean, Trump's entire vulnerability is based on um, his loss of independents who have who have moved away from him and a Democratic base that is that is you know riled up. Um, you know, his numbers with Republicans are in the seventies and eighties. They're very comparable to where a George Bush was. You know. Ronald Reagan like numbers, very, very strong. Uh, the party is with Trump. I think you see this reflected on the Hill. Um, you know, Republican senators are, are wary to cross him and do it very, very uh, reluctantly, if at all. I mean, we've only seen Mitt Romney express any outrage over what was in the Mueller report. I think that's emblematic of where the party is. Um, it's Trump's party. So I think it's the reason you see you know, John Kasich, who is probably, you know, most aggressively considering running now, you know, he's now at CNN on TV and he hasn't completely re- ruled out running, but it seems unlikely he's going to do so. Um, Larry Hogan, the, the governor of Maryland, has said pretty bluntly, like, hey, I'm not going to do a suicide mission. And I don't, you know, I don't know if Trump can be beaten. You know, I got problems with the guy and here they are. But um you know, I think you would have had to see someone jump in 
And I think the result of the Mueller report uh, helped Trump. I mean, if, the, if, if Mueller came out and said, yeah, we have the evidence to say there was collusion, then maybe you have a little bit more of an opening. Um, but I think, you know, he's, Trump's raising an incredible amount of money. Um, you know, the party's already locking down ways to even, you know, obstruct a nominee from, or stop a potential challenger. So I think it's almost, you know, barring something, you know, an occurrence that we can't forecast. I think, you know, Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Um, and I don't think he's vulnerable very much to a challenge at all. Mm -hmm. Which is incredible because if you, I think people thought on the day after election day of 2016, he was going to certainly have a challenger because he was so awful and unpopular and blah, blah, blah. And that, that never went yeah. happening. And so it just shows how he's turned things around in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I just think, look, I mean, it's it's also just really hard to beat an incumbent president in a primary. It, like, doesn't happen. It's very, you know, it's it's really, really hard to do because the party gravitates around the center. And, you know, the party is rallied around Trump. And I think part of it is also the Democratic drift to the left um, has hardened Republican support. Uh, even if they don't like or if they don't love Trump, they don't want a Democrat um, because the economy is doing pretty well. Um, and, you know, they don't they don't want to they don't want democratic policy. Trump has delivered, you know, whether whether you agree with the policies or not, he's delivered on Republican orthodoxy. You know, some people would try to paint him as, oh, he's a moderate or, you know, he was going to govern from the center. But like he hasn't done that. He's governed as a conservative. He, you know, he, he gave a tax cut that was, um, you know, that was distributed mostly to, uh, you know, the high end that, that got, that benefited from it. Um, you know, he delivered very conservative Supreme court justices, two of them, which is, um, will be his most enduring legacy, you know, rollbacks of regulations, uh, for, for business and industry. So he's delivered on the conservative agenda, no matter what, how you thought he campaigned or, what his actual values are and his core. So I think, yeah, they're with him. They're with him for sure. In U.S. News, you have written about the influencers as you see them in the 2020 race. Who are some of these influencers and what are they doing to shape the primary campaign? Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've just kind of looked at um, where where do I see the candidates going and most frequently, or where are they all going? And I mean, we put together a list on usnews.com that, that has the top 10. And, you know, it's, it's a bit arbitrary and subjective for sure. Um, but, you know, you know, Rachel Maddow is at the top of our list, the MSNBC host, because, I mean, in January, every candidate that was announcing every other week was going right on to Rachel Maddow as their first in-depth interview. I mean, she's the top-rated liberal cable show. And in January, she was actually topping Sean Hannity in the rating. So she was definitely a place to go. Um, another um, big influencer is John Favreau, who hosts the, the Pod Save America podcast, um, the former Obama speechwriter. Most of them are, when they're trekking out to California, they make a stop there. That's mm -hmm. a more in depth conversation over an hour. Um, and that's sort of a place where they can drill down on progressive policy. 
uh, to a pretty friendly questioner. Uh, it's not an aggressive confines, but you know they can, but they also can get into substance of their plans. Um, and it's followed by, you know, liberal activists and people that that care about this stuff early on. Um, you know, Al Sharpton's another one that's on the list. I spent a couple days earlier this uh, month in New York at Al Sharpton's National Action Network um, conference, and it's amazing that. You know, 20 years, you know, Al Sharpton used to be, used to be a very controversial, polarizing figure. No question. Democrats used to, used to have to weigh how close they want to even be with him. Like, do you want to be in a picture with Al Sharpton? Um, and now, you know, he's still able to get almost every candidate comes to him and uh, sort of kisses the ring. They're at his conference. They go to lunch with him. Um, so, you know, that, that, that exacts a, a certain amount of influence. He's sort of the shepherd to the African-American uh, constituency in the Democratic Party, and that's that's going to be re- a really important constituency after we get past Iowa, New Hampshire. Well, yeah, absolutely, and it's 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 amazing as someone who grew up in the New York area, as I know that you did. Um, I'm old enough to remember when Al Sharpton was was as polarizing as anyone. So it's it's yeah, absolutely. It, so was I. It's just it's you know you always get a second. <laughs> You get a remake in America, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You touched upon this earlier. The last thing I wanted to mention about, and this this goes to a broader issue, is um, Elizabeth Warren turning down big donors. Is that going yeah. to hurt her or hurt her down the road? I mean, don't campaigns cost yeah. an exorbitant amount of money? It just doesn't seem yes. feasible. <laughs> Look, I mean... I put this question, it's, it's interesting that you asked me about this. I put this question to her, one of her top campaign aides today. And I say, you know, you're kind of getting a ton of buzz about your ideas. And I think she's pretty good on, I think she's really good on stage. When she's asked a question, she knows what she believes. And you know, she's got 50 organizers in Iowa. And she's, she's I mean, she's doing a ton of campaigning on the weekend. She does a ton of stops. Um, you know, one of the most active candidates, I think, um, but yeah, are you going to have the resources? I mean, can you make it through? I mean, all that staff costs a ton of money to pay 50 people in Iowa over months, over months time, and then have people in New Hampshire and South Carolina and on and on and on. Will you run out of money? And they're saying, they, their argument is, look, watch the second quarter reports. If you don't have low dollar contributors, which is all of what Warren had, you're, you'll run out of money. It used to be, you had to you had to rely on the high dollar contributors. You had to go to New York and Miami and Chicago and San Francisco and LA and raise twenty eight hundred dollars, twenty hundred from each person and their wife, their spouse. Um, you do these big events and you pull people in a room and you raise five hundred thousand. Then you go to another, you know, you you drive down to another city and you raise a million. Uh, and that's how you did it. And now they say, well, those, those donors are maxed out and they're also sitting on their hands because there's 20 candidates and nobody knows how this is going to shake out. So yeah, there'll be some of that money, but they said the easiest money to get is that money and that money you get first. So what they're saying is our average contribution is $28. We raised six and we have 11 million, but as she, as she continues to perform, we're going to go back to those same people and they can give again and again and again. And hopefully you're expanding that, that pool of people. And they say that's, you know, that's Bernie's strength. They say partly she's going all in on that. Now I also think 
she's also not, you know, from the practical sense, she's also wasn't going to be able to raise the money from the bigger donors as much. She would raise some, but there, you know, there's some, there's some concern about her as a, a candidate, whether she's too liberal, whether she can win. Um, so it's a, it's a, they're taking sort of the hand they were dealt and they're doubling down on it. They're saying, all right, we were never going to be the big money candidate. So we're going to take none of it and be a purist. And hopefully we get some credit from that, from the small dollar donors, from, from people who don't want rich people in their politics, who are sick of the rich, you know, running our system um, and going all and hopefully getting political credit for that. Now, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical of it because I know I've seen so many campaigns. The only reason a campaign ends is because it runs out of money. That's the reason. Like, if you, that's, and, you know, I've seen it with Scott Walker. You've seen it with other campaigns before. So they say, look, we have low overhead. She doesn't have a lot of consultants. Uh, you know, she, it's all we're paying staff and digital. And if you look at her first quarter report, that's what she's, she's spending money on. But so I think this is going to be, I mean, to answer your question, a long answer is it's going to be based on her performance. If she, if she is still able to inspire people and get people riled up about her ideas and, you know, maybe she has an amazing debate moment in July where she really whacks Trump or, you know, she goes at it with Biden and, you know, put, you know, wins an exchange that goes viral, um, then she'll have the money. Then I think like her strategy will pan out, but if she gets in a place where she's just one of you know ten candidates in, in August and and she's still at eight percent and so is Kamala Harris and Beto and she's not she's not breaking out more than anyone else, then I think the money dries up and then and then that's the question. Um, and then there's the secondary question of whether there's room enough for Bernie and her in the same lane who are competing for largely the same donors uh, from that very progressive wing of a party. And I don't even think they have an answer to that. They don't know. I mean, um, Bernie's people are Bernie's people, but a lot of Bernie's people's second choice is probably Warren, but that also depends on the campaign Bernie runs. I mean, is he still chugging away and raising 20 million a quarter? That's going to be a problem for Elizabeth Warren. I think if, you know, but a lot of this is based on their performance on the stump. So I think it's a great question. And I don't, I'm skeptical of her strategy. It would be unprecedented for her to be able to, to pull this off without any traditional fundraising or big donors. But, you know, we elected Donald Trump. So I have to like open my mind <laughs> to what is possible in our politics. And just so I'm clear, it sounds like, is she the only one doing this at this point? Uh, or is this? Yeah. So she's the only one. No she, one's she's, the, she's the only one that has sworn off all fundraisers. She's not doing or all call, or calling donors. I mean, a lot of them have sworn off corporate donations. They've sworn, sworn off PAC money and they've sworn off super PACs. But, you know, Pete Buttigieg is still going around New York holding traditional fundraisers where you get. 15, 20, 30 rich people in a room, they all toss a bunch of money and then pledge to raise you more money. And, you know, you're there with them for an hour and you, you, you mingle with them over cocktails and hors d'oeuvres. Um, Pete Buttigieg is doing that. Cory Booker is doing that. You know, um, Kristen Gillibrand is doing that. Warren is not doing that. She is not doing any traditional fundraisers in the sense of, you know, I'm going to, 
of the Upper East Side and meeting with 20 people for an hour and a half. Um, and they give me a bunch of money. Um, she is relying all basically on online fundraising and buzz and people just giving to her organically because they believe in her. Interesting. Well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll obviously be following that um, closely yeah. as well. Um, well, thank you. You can find Dave Catanese at U.S. News and World Report and follow him on Twitter at Dave Catanese. Easy enough, I'd say. Thank you for <laughs> us tonight and uh, truly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. Thank you for listening. And if you like this podcast, please share it far and wide. We'll see you next time and be well.